Whole Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 34 for January 2022. Tennis, anyone? Clarence Clark, Frederick Winslow Taylor, William Clothier Sr., Howard Head, and William Clothier Jr. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836. It remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bella Kinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and volunteer podcaster. Tennis came to the United States in the 1870s. It was quickly taken up by the East Coast upper crust, the nouveau riche of the Gilded Age. Germantown's Clarence Clark became one of its primary organizers, and his good friend and neighbor Frederick Winslow Taylor joined him as a doubles partner. William Clothier was the son of department store magnate Isaac Clothier and played his way into the Tennis Hall of Fame. Harold Head found that he was not a very good tennis player, so he changed the equipment to improve his game, just as he had done for skiing. And William Clothier Jr. hobnobbed with the likes of Billy Joe King and Arthur Ashe, while also serving as a spy for the CIA. All five of these men are interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballack-Kenwood. I will tell their stories in this month's edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Tennis, anyone? There are two types of tennis. The older game is called real tennis or royal tennis. It has been played as an indoor competition by the aristocracy since 12th century France, when the ball was struck with the palm of the hand. Tennis indirectly led to the death of King James in Scotland, when in 1437 at the Blackfriars Perth, when the king was attempting to escape his assassins through a drain outlet, which he found had been blocked to prevent the loss of tennis balls. In 1498, French King Charles VIII, the affable, died at age 27, a few hours after he fell and struck his head on a floor lintel while on his way to a match of real tennis. Around 1500, in the second shepherd's play, one of the three gifts presented to the Christ child was a tennis ball. Rackets were introduced in the 16th century, about the time that the English got involved. King Henry VIII was a big fan, and Mary Queen of Scots played the game regularly. Shakespeare even mentions tennis balls in Henry V in 1599. 
There are still more than 50 active real tennis courts in the world, including 10 in the United States. Philadelphia is still represented by the legendary Racket Club of Philadelphia on Rittenhouse Square. A huge step forward occurred in 1839 when Charles Goodyear, a self-taught American chemist, discovered accidentally that when he combined rubber and sulfur over a hot stove, the rubber vulcanized or hardened. This led to a whole new line of products made from vulcanized rubber. Hoses, shoe soles, shock absorbers, conveyor belts, vehicle tires, toys, and bouncing balls. Rackets came to be made from gut strings bound to a teardrop-shaped wooden frame and a long wooden handle. In the late 1860s, a Welsh-born inventor and British Army officer named Walter Clopton Wingfield started experimenting with an outdoor lawn version of tennis. The French lawn game croquet had been introduced in 1856, and neatly trimmed croquet lawns were sprouting up through the British Isles. Wingfield saw how these lawns could be adapted for his new game. At the same time, English soldier and sportsman Major Thomas Henry Harry Jem and his friend, Spanish-born merchant and sportsman Juan Batista Luis Ajurio Pereira, were experimenting with a new game which combined elements of the game rackets with Basque Pelota. They called it Lawn Rackets, Lawn Pelota, and eventually Lawn Tennis. Historians of tennis still argue about who got there first. Wingfield patented a new and improved court for playing the ancient game of tennis in 1874. He started selling boxed sets that included rubber balls, a net, poles, court markers, rackets, and an instruction manual. The set cost between 5 and 10 guineas. That's a sizable $600 to $1,200 in today's money. But despite that, he sold more than a 1,000 of these sets in the first year that they were available. Since Wingfield could not patent a rectangular court, he made his court hourglass-shaped and secured a patent for that. The top of the net was a whopping 4 feet 8 inches off the ground. Current rules call for three and a half feet at the poles and three feet in the middle. And the service had to be made from a diamond-shaped box in the middle of one side of the court only. The game consisted of 15 points, called aces. In 1868, the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club was founded in Wimbledon, England. The inaugural Wimbledon Championship was held in July 1877. It featured only a gentleman's singles competition, which was won by an old rackets player named Spencer Gore. 22 men had each paid a guinea to participate, and Gore won 12 guineas, along with a silver cup valued at 25 guineas. By 1882, the word croquet was dropped from the club's name. In 1884, the club added the ladies' singles competition, and over the next several years, gentlemen's doubles, ladies' doubles, and mixed doubles were added to the competition. It did not take long for lawn tennis to catch on with America's gilded age sportsmen. 
According to E. Digby Baltzell, in his book Men's Tennis from the Age of Honor to the Cult of the Superstar, it was Harry Stevens, then boyfriend of Edith Jones, later to become Edith Wharton, who brought back tennis equipment from England and laid out an early tennis court in Newport, Rhode Island, on the front lawn of his mother's mansion on Bellevue Avenue. Soon, lawn tennis had replaced archery as the favorite pastime of Newport's idle rich. In 1879, James Gordon Bennett, Jr., publisher of the New York Herald, hired the architectural firm of McKim, Mead, and White to design and build his Rhode Island summer hideaway, the Newport Casino, located at 180 to 200 Bellevue Avenue. He intended it to be a social club that included courts for both lawn tennis and real tennis, plus facilities for other games such as squash and lawn bowling, and club rooms for reading, socializing, card playing, billiards, plus a convertible theater and ballroom. Local legend claims that Bennett had been dismissed from the city's most exclusive men's club, the Newport Reading Room, when he bet his friend and polo partner, British Cavalry Officer Captain Henry August Sugar Candy, that he wouldn't ride his horse through the front door of the reading room. Candy won the bet, but both men lost their privileges at the club, and Bennett decided to build his own. In 1881, the United States National Lawn Tennis Association, the USNLTA, was established by a small group of tennis club members from the Northeast United States, including Philadelphia's Clarence Clark. More about him shortly. In 1920, they dropped the word national, and in 1975, they lost the word lawn. Today, they are simply known as the United States Tennis Association, USTA. That same year, the first U.S. National Singles Championship for men, precursor to the U.S. Open, was conducted at the casino in Newport, Rhode Island. It was won by Boston Brahmin Richard D. Sears, who used a square racket. By 1880, there were 30 tennis clubs in the United States, mostly on the East Coast, but also in Chicago, New Orleans, and San Francisco. In 1889, McKim, Mead, and White got another commission, this time from William Roch Wister, whom I talked about at length in podcast number 25, some Wister men you may not know. This new construction, which of course included the tennis club building, second only to the casino, was the Germantown Cricket Club, which Wister had founded in 1854. Later, the same firm created a third masterpiece, the New York Racket and Tennis Club. Tennis even moved up to the country's leadership when accidental President Theodore Roosevelt had the first court installed on the White House grounds. It was enclosed in a 24-foot canvas fence for privacy, and Roosevelt never allowed his photo to be taken while he was decked out in his tennis togs. Plus, he was a mediocre player. There are three men recognized as founders of lawn tennis in Philadelphia. Clarence Monroe Clark, 1859-1937. Joseph Sill Clark, his brother, 1861-1956. And Frederick Winslow Taylor, 1856-1915. The first and the third are buried next to each other at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. 
Clarence Monroe Clark. The first issue of American Cricketer, published in 1877 in Philadelphia, mentioned that lawn tennis is a very popular game in Germantown. Clarence Monroe Clark, his kid brother Joseph Sill Clark, and their good friend Frederick Winslow Taylor all lived in Germantown, just a few tennis lobs away from the Germantown Cricket Club. And all of them belonged to the Young America Cricket Club before it was absorbed by Germantown. At that time, the moneyed section of Germantown was considered a vivid bit of essential New England. The Clarks were descendants of Lieutenant William Clark, who came from England in 1630 and settled in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and later became one of the five original settlers of Northampton. Smith College now stands on the former Clark property. The Clark brothers' grandfather, Enoch W. Clark, came to Philadelphia from New England after suffering some financial reverses, and in 1837 he opened the investment banking firm E.W. Clark & Company. This was amid the panic brought on by Andrew Jackson's defeat of Philadelphia's great banker Nicholas Biddle. That same year, Francis Drexel, an itinerant Austrian portrait painter, founded his own banking firm. The Drexels and the Clarks became the leading banking families in the city. When the United States entered the war against Mexico in 1846, the government borrowed $50 million from E.W. Clark to finance the hostilities. Now, Enoch and his wife, Sarah Crawford Dodge Clark, had four sons and three daughters. The eldest, Edward White Clark, married Mary Todhunter Sill in 1855, and they had six children. They were all achievers. Edward W. Clark II, he was partner in E.W. Clark and a first-class cricketer. He was Commodore of the Philadelphia Corinthian Yacht Club and a famed breeder of Cocker Spaniels. Clarence Monroe Clark, partner in E.W. Clark and tennis player, who we're talking about right now. Joseph Sill Clark Sr. He married Kate Avery, whose family owned Avery Island, home of Tabasco sauce. Their oldest son, Joseph Sill Clark Jr., grew up to be mayor of Philadelphia, 1952 to 56, and U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania, 1957 to 1969. Herbert Lincoln Clark, partner in E.W. Clark and Company. His residence in 1913 became the clubhouse of the Overbrook Golf Club. Percy Hamilton Clark, top U.S. cricket player. He married Elizabeth Roberts, the daughter of the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Their daughter, Mary Todd Hunter Todd Clark, married Nelson Rockefeller at St. Asaph's in Balakinwood in 1930. The Rockefeller's son, Michael Clark Rockefeller, disappeared in 1961 and is believed to have been eaten by cannibals. E.W. Clark & Company was one of the top banking and investment firms in the country. In 1937, at its centenary, the Wall Street Journal published a tribute. E.W. Clark & Company, investment banking and brokerage house, is observing its 100th anniversary today. 
Founded in Philadelphia as a private bank on February 15, 1837, the firm has been continuously under the direction of its founder, Enoch White Clark, and his descendants. Of the present eight partners, three are grandsons and four are great-grandsons. One of the early partners of the firm was Jay Cook. Now, back to tennis. When Joseph Sill Clark turned 90 in 1951, he wrote a lengthy letter to his grandchildren about the early days of Philadelphia tennis. My brother Clarence and I became interested in the game of tennis in the year 1878, I think it was, and we laid out a tennis court on a part of our father's property located on the corner of School Lane and Township Line in Germantown. A little later, Mr. Fred Taylor, a great friend of ours, built a much better court on his father's property on Ross Street, Germantown, on which my brother Clarence and I played a lot of tennis with Fred Taylor and others. Of these three pioneers of Philadelphia tennis, Clarence was the natural organizer. After graduating from the Germantown Academy, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, where he graduated in 1878 at the age of 19. He initially became associated with the Midvale Steel Company and then was involved in Pocahontas Coalfield in Virginia and West Virginia. In 1879, Clarence Clark formed the All-Philadelphia Lawn Tennis Committee to help clarify the rules and regulations of the game. And the next year, he and Fred Taylor challenged a team from Staten Island to an intercity doubles match. Staten Island would not become incorporated into New York City until 1898. The Philadelphians lost the match, and Clarence was impressed by the difference in both regulations and equipment used by the two teams. Joe Clark and his Harvard classmate Dick Sears frequently bicycled to Sears' father's courts at Longwood at the edge of Boston. That's when they were together in university. They frequently encountered another young tennis player, James Dwight, who was Sears' cousin. In their junior year, Clark had beaten Sears for the Harvard Singles Championship. Dwight and Sears had come to the Staten Island Tournament intending to play both singles and doubles matches, but they withdrew when they saw that the balls being used were lighter, softer, and much smaller than those used in Boston. It was after this first tournament that Clarence Clark from Philadelphia, Emilius Outerbridge from Staten Island, and James Dwight from Boston agreed that some form of central regulation was necessary in order to regulate the growing game. Clark put a notice in the American Cricketer, May 8, 1881 issue. Representatives from 33 tennis clubs, more than 100 people, showed up in New York on 21 May 1881 to settle differences and draw up regulations. Now, they elected a man from Albany to be first president, but Clark, Outerbridge, and Dwight made up the executive committee, and Clark was made secretary. The organization, called the United States National Lawn Tennis Association, agreed to conduct their first official championships under the new rules in both men's singles and doubles in August at the newly constructed Newport Casino. One of their first rules was that, quote, none but amateurs shall be allowed to enter for any match played by this association, end quote. 
So in late August 1881, 25 gentlemen, largely Bostonians and Philadelphians, came to Newport by boat, by train, or carriage to compete in the first official tennis tournament in the United States. The players were largely undergraduates or alumni of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Penn. Harvard sophomore Richard D. Sears won the singles. He and his older friend James Dwight entered the doubles, and they were beaten in the third round by Clarence Clark and Fred Taylor. The doubles' final match was all Philadelphia. Clarence Clark, Penn, Fred Taylor, who did not go to college, Alexander von Rensselaer, Princeton, and Arthur Emelin Newbold, Penn. This was the first doubles match in what is now called the U.S. Open. And Clark and Taylor are in the record book as the first winners of doubles at the U.S. Open. In a 1931 article for 50 years of lawn tennis in the United States, Dick Sears wrote, Most of the doubles teams were made up on the spur of the moment, with the result that there was little teamwork, and the partners were constantly interfering with one another. A large number of the players wore knickerbockers with blazers, belts, cravats, and woolen stockings in their club colors. None of the sleeves were cut off, and while a large majority rolled them up, a few left them at full length. They all wore caps or round hats with a rolling brim that could be turned down in front to ward off the glare of the sun. Now, the next year, Clarence Clark lost the National Singles Championships to Dick Sears, 6-1, But this tightly knit group spent the next few years figuring out how to better promote U.S. tennis. In 1883, Joe and Clarence Clark planned a bicycling trip to England. They finagled an invitation to Wimbledon to challenge the then-acknowledged best doubles players in the world, the Renshaw Twins. The Clark brothers were thus the first Americans to play center court at Wimbledon, where they were soundly beaten by Ernie and Will Renshaw. In 1884, Clarence married Fred Taylor's sister, Miss Mary Newbold Taylor. In 1900, he became a partner at E.W. Clark & Company and was placed in charge of public utility investments. He was a pioneer in the development of electric light, electric power, and electric street railway companies, according to his obituary in the New York Times. At various times, he was president of the Nashville Railway and Light Company, the Tennessee Electric Power Company, the Portland, Oregon Electric Power Company, as well as a director or other official of many more companies. Now, despite his love and expertise in tennis, golf was his true passion. He was a sponsor of the Philadelphia Metropolitan Opera Productions, a supporter of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and a director of the National Recreation Association. He was an honorary life trustee of the Unitarian Society of Germantown and a trustee of the Burr and Burton Seminary at Manchester, Vermont, which had been established in 1829. In 1920, Clarence Clark endowed a chair in mountain agriculture at Berea College in Tennessee. Founded in 1855, Berea College was the first college in the southern United States to be co-educational and racially integrated. That chair still exists. 
In October 1936, Clarence Monroe Clark was diagnosed with prostate and bladder cancer and started a slow decline to his death on 29 June 1937. He was 77 years old. He was interred in the Clark-Taylor family plot in the river section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. His grave marker is a large, rough-hewn stone with the name Clark, made of carved granite tree branches, and there's an upside-down torch whose handle is befouled with ivy. A lit torch indicates an everlasting life. An inverted torch represents death. And ivy, as all gardeners know, is eternal. It's a sign of living forever. The family so close in life is scattered in death. Clarence's grandfather, Enoch, is buried at Woodlands. His father, Edward Sr., is at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section 10. Younger brother, Joseph, is interred at St. Thomas Cemetery in White Marsh. Joseph was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1955. Clarence joined him there in 1983, 100 years after appearing at the center court of Wimbledon. Frederick Winslow Taylor is one of those men whose ideas were so fresh and innovative that his last name became an eponym, Taylorism. Now, the real name for his theory, scientific management, is on his tombstone in the burial plot shared with his brother-in-law and former tennis partner, Clarence Clark. They're in the river section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Perhaps a better word to describe this passion is simply efficiency. Taylor's ideas of time and productivity in the workplace became so well accepted that the terms Taylorism and scientific management are no longer thought of as something unique. They're simply the way things are done in factories and businesses and sports teams around the world. Before Taylor, there was no objective method for determining how fast a job should be done or what tools were best for accomplishing a particular chore. Most factory managers simply used experience as a guide. What Taylor did was to break down a work task into its constituent elements or motions, to eliminate wasted motions so the work would be done in the one best way, to provide the tools that would help a worker accomplish a task most efficiently, and to time the remaining motions in order to arrive at an expected rate of production. In other words, determine a proper Per day's pay. In 1977, management scholars Daniel A. Wren and Robert D. Hay asked historians of business and economics to rank 71 contributors to management thought and practice. The competition was stiff and included John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Alfred P. Sloan, Thomas Edison, and Henry Ford. Taylor won handily. The same list was presented to members of the Management History Division of the Academy of Management. Taylor scored 31 first-place votes. The person in second place got three. Austrian-American management consultant, educator, and author Peter Drucker, the founder of Modern Management, felt that Taylor had as much an impact on the 20th century as Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx, and he placed him ahead of Charles Darwin. 
Freud brought order to measuring the depths of the mind, Marx to the quirks of social and economic systems, and Darwin to the chaos of life on Earth. Taylor brought order to the physical, economic, and psychological complexities of human work. Yet, if you mention his name to any but business management types, you might get only a quizzical look. Frederick Winslow Taylor is a man who deserves and will eventually get a podcast episode of his own. This episode is about tennis, so I will tell you how a man who thought there was only one best way to perform a task and live by the stopwatch approached his recreational pursuits in the same way. In 1872, when he was 16 years old, Fred attended Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, which was a prime feeder into Harvard. He took up rowing and baseball, where he learned to throw a wicked curveball that usually caused batters to harmlessly pop out. Along the way, as we know, he took up tennis, and with neighbors Clarence and Joseph Clark, became highly skilled at this new game, playing frequently at the Clark Estate. Soon, Fred's house on Ross Street had its own court, and there he practiced incessantly, after work, on holidays, on Sundays, much to the consternation of his neighbors, who seriously took the Sabbath as a day of rest. Taylor was right-handed. He typically delivered ground strokes with no top spin or undercut. He was good, but he never got far as a singles player. He preferred the intricacies of doubles. He and Clarence Clark represented Germantown's American Cricket Club and did far better together than they ever did individually. Taylor and Clark, who was three years younger, both were working at the Midvale Steel Plant by this time. It was in the fall of 1880 that the duo challenged the Outer Bridge team from Staten Island and lost. I talked about the consequences of that meeting in the Clarence Clark segment. And it was in 1881 that Taylor and Clark continued to beat all comers, including that fierce match against Princeton. Remember that Taylor and Clark had been playing as a duo for two years. Others who paired off with each other for the first time were stepping on each other's toes and crashing into each other. Taylor and Clark just played their usual cool, consistent game. One was close to the net, the other was in the back court. Never one to merely deal with what was given him, Taylor used a racket of his own invention that was shaped like a large, long-handled spoon. The plane of the netting in the head and the axis of the handle were at about 15 degree angles to one another. When Taylor got around to patenting this oddity in 1886, he said that its particular shape allowed him to better scoop up low balls or reach high over the net and slam the ball back into the opposite court with some confidence that it might land in bounds. He experimented with oval and teardrop-shaped racket heads, which today have become standard. He also invented and patented several improvements in the nets and the posts, which he sold to Spalding Sporting Goods at a handsome profit. One of his inventions maintained the net's tautness without using guy ropes, windlasses, pulleys, and other paraphernalia. While Clarence and Joseph Clark went on to tennis greatness, Taylor made his name as an efficiency manager in the steel business, completely reorganizing Joseph Horton's Bethlehem Steel Company to the benefit of owner and workman alike. And as he grew older, his sports passions changed from tennis to golf. 
By 1900, Philadelphia and its surroundings had 13 courses. Five of them were on private estates, and the game obsessed Taylor. He practiced before breakfast and after breakfast and during breakfast. He played in cold and stormy weather, and the snow had to be several inches deep to keep him off the course. He played well enough, earning an eight handicap, and once he shot a 76 on Walter J. Travis's outstanding Equinox course in Manchester, Vermont. But he could never simply enjoy the game as a game, as relaxation. Golf was a game played with tools, which meant that playing golf was work, and work in whatever form had to be attacked scientifically. There was one best way to play golf, and he set out to find it. Despite his unorthodox tools and playing style, Taylor was good enough to finish fourth in the 1900 Paris Olympics, seven strokes behind the bronze medal winner, 15 strokes behind the gold. For more on that, check out All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 29 for August 2021. 1900 Olympiad II, the Zany Games. Already an expert on the design of metal-cutting machines, Taylor used his knowledge to experiment with golf clubs. He built scores of them, arriving at prototypes only after several stages of design had been completed. Careful measurements, his beloved systematic variation of parameters, numerous charts and graphs. Several of his concepts proved quite wise. He designed a highly original mashie, that's a five iron, that had a slightly ribbed face for greater backspin. He also spent years evolving a driver a foot longer than normal with a much thinner lower shaft for greater flexibility. Perhaps boldest of all was Taylor's 1905 design of a croquet mallet style putter. After scrutinizing the biomechanics of putting for a decade, he determined that the best way to wield this most essential tool of the sport was to swing it as a pendulum between his legs, directly facing the line from ball to hole. The shaft entered the head of this putter midway between the two ends, and two forking arms ran from midway up the shaft, gave sort of the overall appearance of a pogo stick. The golfer rested his forearms against these branches. This made the putter easier to hold and swing on line. Soon after Taylor started using this unusual club during rounds at the Philadelphia Country Club, United States Golf Association representatives questioned its legality, and eventually the USGA outlawed the forked arms. Now, astonishingly, his driving was even stranger than his putting. He would sacrifice stability by placing his feet close together and added a blank angle to his target line. Thus, with his back turned away from the ball, looking back at the ball over his left shoulder, he started his backswing, trying to generate the greatest possible force into his body. At the upper limit, his back was aligned to the direction the ball was to take. And to see the ball, he had to screw his head around. Turning his long club till it finally began to revolve in the direction he wanted it to take, he, with body and arms going together, would swing through, pivoting on the ball of his left foot. 
Many of Taylor's playing partners closed their eyes while he was hitting or simply stared off into space for fear that seeing his method would put them off their game. Some club members refused to play with him. And his results were not half bad. At the top of his game, he drove the ball 250 yards, which was farther than he had ever driven when aligned conventionally. He even won a number of handicapped tournaments, noting that, quote, every year I hang up a few more scalps in my lodge, end quote. Frederick Winslow Taylor's largest contribution to golf turned out not to be the putter or his unusual stance, but the putting green, where he spent years experimenting with various soils and seeds to create the smooth greens that everyone now knows. He did his experiments at his Chestnut Hill estate, Boxley. After chemically analyzing the soil where the putting green was to be made, he attempted to supply it with the fertilizer and the manure or lime needed to put it in proper condition for growing grass. After three years of trial and error, he concluded the answer was in the physics and chemistry of the soil, which often, because of its composition and moisture-holding properties, did not permit grass roots to penetrate and grow as they should. In keeping with his standardization principle, Taylor's object became, quote, to suit the soil to the grass, not the grass to the soil. If he could synthetically mix an appropriate soil, he could then identify the one best grass to grow from it. Taylor selected peat moss as the basis of his soil mixture. It offered several valuable qualities. High water holding capacity, free circulation of air, uh, some invulnerability to weed seeds. Uh, Adding one part of powdered bone to 12 parts of shredded peat moss, Taylor developed a recipe that came to be known as Taylor Soil. Taylor made significant contributions to the creation of some classic American golf courses. For instance, 1911-1912, he personally supervised the making of at least four greens on the new course being built by the Marion Golf Club in Ardmore. This historic course outside Philadelphia hosted its first U.S. Amateur Championship in 1916, and several other major championships have followed. Taylor's gardener at Boxley, Robert Bender, who managed a special crew of 10 to 30 men just to do grass experiments, eventually became one of the East Coast's most sought-after builders of putting greens. Starting in 1904, he made rolling greens, that is, Taylor's specially mapped contoured greens for courses at White Marsh near Philadelphia and at Asheville, North Carolina. More significantly, his crowning glory in 1914, Bender built the greens at Pine Valley Golf Club, the challenging layout in the Pine Barrens of southern New Jersey. Pine Valley still ranks number one on many lists of the greatest golf courses in the United States, and Bender's highly contoured, tailor-made greens are one of the primary reasons. In the late winter of 1915, Taylor caught pneumonia, and on March 21st, one day after his 59th birthday, he died. He was buried on a hill overlooking the Schuylkill River, and his grave was marked with a stone inscribed, Frederick W. Taylor, Father of Scientific Management.
during most of the 20th century, three department stores dominated Philadelphia. Wanamaker's, Kimball's, and Strawbridge and Clothier. The latter was founded by two devout Quakers, Justice Clayton Strawbridge, 1838 to 1911, and his good friend, Isaac Hallowell Clothier, 1837-1921. The Clothiers had come from a small English village near Glastonbury in Somersetshire to Burlington, New Jersey in 1713. By the time of the American Revolution, they were living in the nearby Quaker town of Mount Holly, New Jersey. In the 1820s, a young Caleb Clothier, a member of the third generation in the country, heard the charismatic preaching of Elias Hicks, 1748 to 1830, an itinerant Quaker minister. It was Hicks's ideas that led to the famous Hicksite separation of 1827-28. Hicksites believed that the inner light must be the primary source of truth and that the Bible was only a secondary source. While Orthodox Quakers believe that the Bible must be the primary authority on the truth. In addition to theological issues, economic, geographic, kinship, and governance differences were involved in this conflict. Caleb Clothier was impressed with these new ideas, and he joined the schism. Despite different orthodoxies, American Quakers of both sects made notable contributions to America during the 19th century. Friends participated in the settling of the Western frontier before and after the Civil War. Primary and secondary education was always a major Quaker concern, and they established many Quaker schools. After overcoming a long distrust of higher education, they started several of their own colleges. Justice Strawbridge served on the boards of the Orthodox Friends Colleges at Bryn Mawr and Haverford, while Isaac Clothier's family dedicated their time to the Hicksite Swarthmore College for more than two generations. Friends also worked for the abolition of slavery and war, for the welfare of African Americans and Native Americans, for prison reform, for temperance, for the mentally ill, and for the rights of women. Some Quakers played a prominent role in the Underground Railroad, which gave aid and shelter to people escaping slavery as they fled to the northern states or Canada. And most of the organizers and officers of the first Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls in 1848 were Quakers, or former Quakers. Now, on the first day of July, 1868, Justice Strawbridge and Isaac Clothier, each with previous experience in the dry goods trade, agreed to go into partnership. Justice put up much of the capital, nearly $45,000, while Isaac supplied nearly $9,000 in merchandise. Importantly, they vowed to follow the Quaker principles of honesty, diligence, orderliness and responsibility, and that is how they carried out a business for more than a century. Now, Isaac had married Mary Clapp Jackson, daughter of a prosperous Quaker merchant in 1864. Mary's father, William Jackson, tore down two buildings he owned at 8th and Market Street, and he built a five-story store, which he rented to the new partners. Justice and Mary had nine children. One of their daughters, Hannah Clothier Hall, feminist and pacifist, will be the subject of an episode of the Midmonth podcast, Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories, in March of 2022.
Their youngest child, William Jackson Clothier, was born in the Hicksite Quaker suburb of Sharon Hill when his father was 44 and his mother was 39. He grew up at the mainline family estate Ballytor, a 60-acre property in Wynwood, which later served as the home for Agnes Irwin's school from 1933 to 1960. In 1963, Ballytor became the home of the St. Sahag and St. Mesrab Armenian Apostolic Church of Wynwood. You've probably seen it many times when driving on Lancaster Avenue. He initially attended Haverford School. Newport, Rhode Island was the summer destination for the clothiers, as it was for many rich Philadelphians during this gilded age. But rather than building a mansion on a Quidneck Island where Newport proper is located, like the Strawbridges had done, Isaac put his shingled mansion called Harbor's Entrance in Jamestown, that's across the Narragansett Bay on the island of Connecticut. His neighbor in Rhode Island was another Philadelphia Hicksite Quaker, Swarthmore College colleague Joseph Horton, whose mansion Marbella still stands and remains in the Horton family. During tennis week at the end of each August, members of the Clothiers, Whartons, and other Jamestown summer clans took the ferry boat each day to Newport to be spectators at the casino. Young Bill Clothier did not enter his first casino tournament until 1896, when he was 15. He was by far the best athlete in the family, despite being self-taught, as he was too young to play with his older brothers. He had built his solid and patient game through endless solitary hours, banging the ball up against the barn door. All of the Clothier children graduated from Swarthmore, except for Bill. He attended during his freshman year, and he was president of the freshman class, and he played on the varsity football and ice hockey and baseball teams. But his time in Newport showed him that the best practitioners of his real passion, tennis, came from Harvard. So he transferred there for his sophomore year. Among his classmates was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and when the class graduated in 1904, Roosevelt and Clothier were two of the three class members elected marshals. His tennis continued to improve, and in 1902 he became intercollegiate champion, and he reached the fourth round at Newport, where he was beaten by the legendary Englishman Reginald Frank R.F. Doherty gold medalist in the doubles and mixed doubles at the 1900 Paris Olympiad. Bill made it to the finals in 1903, but now he was beaten by Hugh Lawrence Doherty, RF's brother and gold medalist in both singles and doubles at the 1900 Olympics. Bill was defeated in the finals again in 1904, the year he graduated. In 1905, Clothier was a member of the United States' first Davis Cup team to play in England, but they lost in the quarterfinals at Newport. While British players had previously traveled to America, this was the first time that the visit would be reciprocated. The tournament was initially titled the International Lawn Tennis Challenge, but eventually became known as the Davis Cup. It was named for the man who had donated the cup, Dwight F. Davis, who went on to serve as Secretary of War from 1925 to 29 under President Calvin Coolidge. In 1906, Bill Clothier finally won the United States National Lawn Tennis Championship, exactly 10 years after he had entered his first Newport tournament.
The same year, he married Anita Porter, the beautiful daughter of Judge William W. Porter, whose lineage stretched to 1720, when Robert Porter emigrated from Londonderry, Ireland, to Londonderry, New Hampshire. This merger of two distinguished families called for a massive, elaborate wedding. It was planned for the 21st of February. But Bill's favorite horse had other plans and threw his mount when they slipped on ice while they were riding at Lanark. He broke his pelvis. He called for help. Two local farmers put him in their carriage and drove him from Lanark to Ballytour in Wynwood. His gardener, Jeffrey Powers, age 53, helped carry him into the house and then went to his own home where he died two hours later of a heart attack, leaving a widow and two children. Bill was going to be confined to bed for weeks, if not months. So when the wedding ceremony was performed on the scheduled day, it was in his bedroom in front of only a handful of family at Ballet Tour. Now, despite what could have been a really, really hindering injury as far as his writing and tennis playing, in the 14 years between 1901 and 1914, Clothier recovered enough to be ranked in the first 10 11 times. And during his 24 years of competitive tennis, he won the Canadian, the Pennsylvania State five times, and the New York State Championships, and numerous other state and regional challenges. And all this time, William Clothier was a successful businessman. He started his career as a partner in the investment firm of Montgomery, Clothier, and Tyler with Colonel Robert L. Montgomery, builder of Ardrison and father of Hope Montgomery Scott, and George Tyler, who married into the Elkins family and is a namesake for Tyler State Park in Bucks County. When that firm dissolved in 1921, he became president and owner of the Boone County Coal Company in West Virginia until he retired in 1957. In addition, he was running an 800-acre farm attached to his estate, Valley Hill Farm, near Valley Forge. When he stepped down from being master of the Pickering Hunt Club in Phoenixville in 1951, it ended a life of 40 years as master of the hounds, as well as breeding and raising them. Clothier was an extremely well-disciplined and rigidly organized man. He refused any social invitations on weeknights, especially on Fridays, because of his full hunting regime on Saturdays in season and tennis during the summer. At least two mornings a week for many years, he was up and following the hounds by 6 a.m. and behind his office desk in town by 9.30 a.m. His acquaintances knew him as fearless. He broke almost every bone in his body, several more than once at one time or another. He was the essence of the strong, silent man. He had no use for Philadelphia tennis great Bill Tilden, whom he considered far too theatrical and flamboyant. And as a staunch Republican, he had a lifelong distaste for his charming Harvard classmate, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When the Lawn Tennis Hall of Fame and Tennis Museum was founded at Newport in 1954, William Clothier was elected its first president. Later, he became chairman of the board. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1956, the year after Joe Clark and Dick Sears, and the same year as Dwight Davis. 
Bill's wife, Anita, was his opposite, vivacious, charming, full of fun. She raised three children to adulthood and ran the huge estate while riding the hounds herself every Saturday. Tragedy struck in 1932 when their daughter, Augusta, died at age 21 of severe bronchospasm and pneumonia. Anita Clothier's volunteer work won her the Philadelphia Woman of the Year Award in 1942. Ironically, it was called the Gimbel Award. In 1950, another tragedy struck when their house burned to the ground, taking with it years of invaluable tennis trophies and other memorabilia. Anita died in 1955 at age 69 of a stroke. Bill outlived her by seven years and died at age 80, also of a stroke, in 1962, leaving three children, seven grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. The Clothiers are buried in the summit section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, each with a simple stone, and they're just a few hundred feet from their lifelong business partners, the Strawbridges. Let's take a break for a minute. You know, the new year is almost here. And even in cold weather, Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery have lots of activities to keep you busy and informed. You might still be able to catch the year-end champagne toast to General George Meade at his gravesite at the 206th anniversary of his birth. Give us an RSVP at the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events and then meet us at the gatehouse at noon. The January Virtual Death Cafe is planned for Tuesday, 11 January at 6.30 p.m. via Zoom. Two days later, Thursday the 13th, Rachel Wolgamuth and Sarah Hamill give a virtual program on Black Trailblazers of Philadelphia via Zoom. That is a pay-what-you-wish tour. Saturday, 15 January, is an in-person Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour at Laurel Hill from 1 until 3 p.m. It's a good introduction to many of our permanent residents if you've never been there before. The following Saturday, 22 January, is a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour at West Laurel Hill, also starting at 1 p.m. And that will be a good introduction for you to that cemetery. Sunday, 16 January, is a tour in honor of Tu B'Shevet, the Jewish New Year of the Trees, when you can explore our Arboretum with Arboretum Manager and Board Certified Master Arborist Aaron Greenberg. And speaking of plants and trees, there's a virtual tour on Thursday, 27 January at 6.30 p.m. called The Sensory Appeal of Native Plants. That will be conducted by the horticulturalist Greg Tepper. Go to the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events to sign up for any and all of these tours. You will notice that if you are a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, you can get a $5 discount for each tour. Check out the membership levels under the support tab and see which best suits your needs and wallets. Remember, one of the benefits of membership is at least two members-only podcasts for 2022. And we'll be offering a lot more exciting benefits for members as the year goes on. Join today. Remember, it is tax-deductible. Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. To 
Despite completely revolutionizing two sports, Howard Head did not come from an athletic family, nor was he a particularly good athlete himself. His father, Joseph Head, 1862 to 1950, was a physician and a dentist who served as dean of dentistry at Jefferson Medical School from 1917 to 1930. His mother, Annie Lindsay Wilkinson Head, 1875 to 1961, held a master's degree in mathematics. His older sister, Elizabeth Head, 1904 to 1973, was a very successful writer, even in her 20s. She used the nom de plume Hannah Lees. She had articles in The New Yorker, The Cosmopolitan, numerous other publications. She will be the subject of the mid-month podcast, Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories, at some time in the future. Now, when Howard saw his sister's success, he decided that he, too, wanted to be a writer. The problem is, he was never any good at it. When he entered Harvard in 1932, he enrolled in literature and writing courses and soon was on the verge of flunking out. He took an aptitude test. It revealed unknown skills in engineering, especially in conceptualizing three-dimensional shapes. So he switched his major. And soon he was on the dean's list, and when he graduated in 1936, it was with a degree in engineering science with honors. But Howard was stubborn. He still wanted to be an author. So he went to work as a screenwriter for the March of Time newsreel company. The March of Time was a monthly 20 to 30 minute summary of news from around the world shown in American movie theaters to an estimated 25 million viewers per month. But Howard was far more interested in fixing the film splicers than he was in writing scripts, so he was soon fired. He took three more jobs as a writer, including a stint as a copyboy for the Philadelphia Record, and then he finally gave it up. In 1939, 25 years old, he was hired as a riveter at the Glenn L. Martin Aircraft Company in Baltimore for 50 cents an hour. Within a year, he was made rivet gang boss at four times that much, probably based on results of work time studies, as suggested by Frederick Winslow Taylor. When the war started to heat up, Howard moved into Martin's engineering department. He was soon involved with the design of the B-26 Marauder, a twin-engine bomber. He became thoroughly familiar with the materials and technology involved in building what was originally called the Horror from Baltimore, because its short wings suggested that the airplane had, quote, no visible means of support, end quote. The Marauder was the first World War II vintage combat aircraft to use plastic on a grand scale. The B-26 had a skin that was a sandwich of an aluminum alloy that was stronger than cold rolled steel of the same thickness, which was wrapped around a honeycomb structure. In fact, the B-26 contained more than 400 plastic parts, replacing metal. He was also a decent poker player, and he managed to save up about $6,000 of his winnings. That's more than a year's salary, which he stuffed into a mattress for a rainy day. In the winter of 1947, the balding 32-year-old Howard Head went on a ski vacation to Stowe, Vermont with some friends, and he discovered that he was a lousy skier. He kept crashing and hurting himself. He tried to do a snowplow and ended up face first in the snow. 
Despite his gangly six foot four inch frame, he could not really accept that he was that bad of a skier. He felt humiliated by the experience. He decided that it had to be the Hickory Skis, and on the train back to Baltimore, he started to sketch his plans for better tools. He said if wood were the best material, they'd still be making airplanes out of it. So he took his knowledge of aerodynamics, plastics, and metal alloys, and he set out to find something that would make him a better skier. He scrounged some aluminum scraps from Martin Aircraft, and he started to build a flexible laminated ski. And what he created over the next year was essentially a metal sandwich, two layers of aluminum with plywood sidewalls surrounding a honeycomb core. During Christmas 1948, he headed back to Stowe to show off his seven pairs of new skis. When he distributed six pairs among ski instructors, they flexed them with their hands, and all of them broke. Head strapped on the seventh pair, and he started skiing, and they broke. But one of the ski instructors apparently saw some potential, and he encouraged him not to give up. He promised that his head worked out the bugs of his invention. He would test them, and then send them back when they broke. In this way, Head could see all the flaws in his design and keep improving. By the next winter, he had created skis that weighed only half as much as traditional wooden skis, but were just as strong. And over the next two years, he built 39 more prototypes, and they all broke. Various ski pros were not encouraging. One told him that all his shiny new skis were good for was hanging in an outhouse, so people using the facility would have a mirror in which to shave. Soon his poker money stash was gone, and he was borrowing from friends in order to complete his obsession. He had not paid the workers in his shop for 18 months, and he was living in a $20 basement apartment where he washed his dishes in a bathtub. On his 40th try in 1951, Howard Head showed up at Tuckerman's Ravine in New Hampshire and asked his friend Cliff Taylor to try out the latest set of skis. They worked perfectly in every conceivable snow condition, powdered, packed, or in between, early morning ice, afternoon crud, everything. This ski, called a head standard, was made of metal, plastic, and plywood. It was three times more flexible than wooden skis, yet weighed half as much. When interviewed years later, Head said, if I'd known that it would take 40 versions before the ski was any good, I might have given up. But fortunately, you get trapped into thinking the next design will be it. Head started traveling across the country, selling his new skis out of the back of his station wagon at ski resorts and parking lots, and they sold quickly. In the winter of 1950-51, he made and sold 300 pairs of skis. He grossed $12,000, and he lost money. 1951-52, he broke even, and he finally turned a profit the next year, $1,200. Now, at first, people were skeptical until they found out how much easier it was to turn in all types of snow. Word of mouth caused head skis to gradually take over the markets in Colorado and New England, and ski instructors started encouraging new students to only ski with the new equipment. He expanded his business, and then he struggled to keep up with the demand. Borrowing from friends was no longer enough, so he incorporated the Head Ski Company. He kept 60% of the stock. 
he sold the other 40% for $60,000, which would eventually be worth $6,400,000. Head skis either paralleled or inspired, it's hard to determine, the ski boom that took place over the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. When Howard Head first tried the sport in 1947, there were an estimated 10,000 skiers in the country. By the mid-1960s, that number had exploded to 2,500,000. And Head standards were not cheap. At a time when the best wooden skis could be had for $45 a pair, Heads went for $85. It did not slow people from buying them. By 1966, Head Ski Company employed 500 people and was selling 300,000 skis a year in 17 countries. At its peak, the net profits were about $25 million a year. Skiers using Head Skis dominated the competition at the 1964 Winter Olympics in Innsbruck, Austria. And Billy Kidd from Steamboat, Colorado became the first American man to medal in an alpine skiing event when he finished second in the slalom on head skis. And two years later, a pair of Americans set a world speed record 106.5 miles per hour on head racing skis. By the 1968 Winter Olympics, head skis had become the standards. In 1971, Harold Head realized that the company had grown beyond his ability to manage it. He sold the business to AMF for $16 million and he retired at age 57. But he needed a hobby in retirement and so he took up tennis and even had a court built at his house. And again, guess what? He was lousy at it. After spending thousands of dollars on lessons from tennis pros, he showed little improvement. In a fit of exasperation, one of his instructors suggested that he purchase a ball machine for further practice, telling him, there's a slim possibility that you might improve. He procured a ball machine from the Prince Manufacturing Company of Princeton, New Jersey. It was founded in 1970. It was frustratingly glitchy and unreliable, so naturally he started to tinker with it. And instead of working on his backhand, Howard took the ball machine apart and he came up with a list of improvements that he believed would enhance its performance. So he called the folks at Prince to offer advice and then ended up driving to their corporate headquarters and demonstrated his improvements in person. He ended up investing in the company and wound up owning about 25% of it and soon the Prince Ball machine was the standard that dominated the market. But much to his aggravation his game was still not improving. The racket kept twisting in his hand, sending the ball off in unpredictable directions. In typical Howard Head fashion, he decided that the problem was in the equipment he determined that the racket head needed to be bigger to assist its stability. He checked with the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association regarding the rules governing the size or shape of a tennis racket and was elated to find that they only stated that the racket is, quote, the implement used to strike the ball, end quote. Now, theoretically, you could use an iron skillet or a ping pong paddle and not break any rules. 
Tennis rackets had remained almost unchanged since they first appeared in the 18th century. Wood limited the racket face to about eight and one half inches wide and 10 inches long because bigger rackets were too heavy and prone to breaking. Head began to develop an oversized racket from high alloy aluminum. He increased both its length and its width and then patented and introduced the first prints in 1974. He started at the junior circuit level. He convinced a 14-year-old girl named Pam Shriver to give it a try. Critics mocked it. They said it looked like a snowshoe or a spaghetti strainer. It earned the nickname the Bionic Banjo. But in 1978, Pam Shriver became the youngest player ever to reach the finals of the U.S. Open when she defeated Martina Navratilova in the semifinals before losing to Chris Evert. And five years later, almost every pro was using an oversized racket. When Shriver used it at the Open, the company had 50,000 orders for the racket. And by 1980, Prince was the fastest growing tennis racket in the world. Head also spent time studying the physics of his racket to find out why it functions so much better than those with the traditional smaller heads. He discovered that the sweet spot was not in the center of the racket, as everyone had been taught, but down near the handle. The sweet spot is the location at which the object being struck, usually a ball, absorbs the maximum amount of the available forward momentum and rebounds away from the racket or bat or club with a greater velocity than if struck at any other point in the racket or bat or club. Baseball players will tell you that they know they've hit the sweet spot when their swing feels totally effortless as they contact the ball. They're barely aware of hitting it, yet it soars 420 feet away. With the oversized Prince head, the sweet spot was four times larger than on a standard racket. Head later said, we were startled to discover the best place to hit the ball was in that three square inch area of added length, an area that doesn't even exist on conventional rackets. It's about two-thirds of the way up from where you grip the racket, the throat of the standard racket. The hitting surface of a standard racket is 70 square inches. Howard Head got a very good patent that essentially covered all rackets with a head size of 85 to 130 square inches, and he then collected royalties from anyone who made an oversized racket. Just as with the Head Ski, recreational players took up the Prince Racket in large numbers before it began appearing on the professional tour. For weekend players like Head, the Prince took them to the next level. For professionals, the Prince changed the game itself as shorter, choppier strokes started replacing longer, fluid ones. In 1982, Head sold his interest in Prince to Cheeseboro Ponds for $62 million, and he retired again, this time permanently. Now, Head admits to having struggled with alcohol for a period of his life. His first marriage had ended in divorce. Anne Wales Christensen, 1915-1968, was very successful at one thing that Howard had failed at miserably, writing, using the nom de plume Anne Head. When she died, her obituaries all mentioned that she was certainly the best-known writer in South Carolina. You can read about her at her Wikipedia entry, Anne Head. I can find very little about his second wife, Dorothy Elizabeth Councilman Head, 1914-1968. to 
1920 to 1958, to whom he was married for only a few months before her death. And I find next to nothing about his third wife, Joan, even though she is mentioned in a couple of contemporary articles. Howard and his fourth wife split their time between Baltimore and a condominium in Vail, Colorado. That's where he had met her. She was local, Martha Marty Fritzlin, vivacious mother of two, who had been widowed a few years before when her husband, who invented the radar speed gun, had died suddenly at age 48. Howard and Marty married in 1984. His philanthropy was legendary. He launched the Howard Head Sports Medicine Center to help athletes in 1987. Today, that center is one of the world's leading clinics for treating sports-related injuries in the world. He contributed to the Baltimore Museum of Industry, which has a permanent Head Prince exhibit as part of their Maryland Milestones Gallery. The Enoch Pratt Free Library, the Baltimore Symphony, the Walters Art Museum, the Johns Hopkins University, the National Aquarium, many, many other institutions. But his true love was the regional theater scene in Baltimore. And in 1991, the year of his death, Baltimore's Center Stage Theater dedicated the Head Theater as a tribute to the years of support from Howard and Marty. During the late 1980s, his health began to fail. He died on 4 March 1991. His remains were cremated and interred with other members of his family in a plot on a rather steep incline in the river section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. It's just a few dozen feet behind the obelisk of Caleb Milne, Jr. I do not recommend that you visit it unless you have a walking stick and particularly strong ankles. In March 2017, Howard Head, the founder of Head Ski, was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame for his ski and tennis racket inventions. He is considered the patron saint of average athletes. William J. Clothier II was born in 1915 and, like his father, attended the Haverford School. From 1927 to 1934, he went to summer camp in the Adirondacks, learning about camping and sports. For the final two years, he was put in charge of a tennis program on the newly built tennis court, probably based on his father's reputation. In 1929, Bill attended St. Paul's in Concord, a school long connected with upper-class traditions in Philadelphia. There was a small elite group of tennis players at St. Paul's, and everyone was expected to play team sports, football, ice hockey, baseball, or rowing. Philadelphian and author E. Digby Baltzell was among the few tennis competitors. After graduating, Bill played in his first Eastern Circuit tournament, and he lost in the singles to Dwight F. Davis, Jr., son of the Davis Cup sponsor. Davis was 26, Clothier was only 18. Bill and his father played in the father-son tournament, but they also lost. Bill followed his father to Harvard, where he majored in anthropology. He admired his football friend Joe Kennedy, Jr., but had little use for Joe's younger brother, Jack. A newspaper article dated 19 September 1936 noted that while scrimmaging in a driving rainstorm, quote, Bill Clothier Jr., a halfback, suffered a jaw fracture, end quote. 
Bill Sr. and Jr. continued to compete together, and they won some father-son championships, including a historic final match against Dwight F. Davis Sr. and Jr. in 1936, when Bill Sr. was 55 and Bill Jr. was 21. This was their high-water mark in father-son tennis competition. Now, when Bill Jr. graduated from Harvard in 1938, he went to work for his father's Boone County Coal Company in the borough now named for his father, Clothier, West Virginia. As war approached, he joined the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and he was on his way to the Los Angeles field office when Pearl Harbor was attacked. In 1942, the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, under Wild Bill Donovan, took over intelligence gathering in Europe, while J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were assigned to Latin America. Bill was assigned tours of duty in Chile and Peru, where his cover was as an archaeologist studying pre-Columbian architecture. He became fluent in Spanish and even spent some time in Cuba. Now, he resigned from the FBI in March 1946 to join the investment and brokerage firm of Janney & Company. That's a direct descendant of his father's company, Montgomery Clothier & Tyler. In the meantime, Alan Dulles, who had been close to Donovan during the war, became the first director of the OSS offshoot, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. This was in 1947. Early CIA leaders were largely drawn from the Ivy League Old Boys Network, riddled with old Grotonians and St. Paul's men. Dulles convinced Bill to join his group, and he spent the post-war years collecting foreign intelligence for the CIA office in Philadelphia. Now, while Bill was patriotically serving his country in the CIA, he was also devoting less time to playing tennis and more time to tennis administration. His base was the Marion Cricket Club on Montgomery Avenue in Haverford, which had been founded in 1865. In 1894, Marion had been the site of the first Pennsylvania State Lawn Tennis Championship, which it then hosted for the next 80 years. Bill Clothier Jr. oversaw all aspects of this event from 1948 to 1974. As an aside, Marion's clubhouse was designed by none other than architect Frank Furness. In the years before the rise of professional tennis, William Clothier Jr. was vital in making the Marion Tournament so important, what with his role as chair of the International Play Committee and the Grass Court Circuit Committee. He was also one of the few Americans to belong to the All England Club at Wimbledon. In 1952, Bill founded the Philadelphia Tennis Patrons Association, which he led for 25 years. Its primary impact in Philadelphia was to make it possible for underprivileged children to learn to play the game. He worked hard to make the Marion Tournament the best on the circuit. All out-of-town amateur players were treated like club members. They were housed with members along the main line and usually fed for free at the club. In 1953, Bill arranged for pioneering African-American great Althea Gibson to compete at Marion and to stay at a private home in Radnor. This is years before many East Coast tennis clubs would integrate. A decade later, when another African-American, Arthur Ashe, won the tournament, 
Clothier arranged through the Council of International Visitors to have him stay at the home of a professor of economics at Haverford College. Clothier's Philadelphia Tennis Patrons Association was given a boost in 1983 when the Arthur Ashe Youth Tennis Center on Ridge Avenue in Maniunk was founded due to their friendship. Clothier was named to the USLTA International Play Committee in the late 1950s. He became chair of the committee in 1965. In this role, he determined which Americans would receive financial assistance for overseas trips in the summer and where they would go. His committee also enforced the rule that forbade U.S. players from receiving expenses in European tournaments that were held after Wimbledon. It is uncertain if the USLTA was aware of his involvement in the CIA at the time, but this role gave him a perfect cover. In her autobiography, Billie Jean King noted, quote, Aside from the per diem, the USLTA held another whip, the overseas tour. For example, a man named Bill Clothier of Philadelphia was heavily involved with the Pennsylvania Grass Court Championships, and he was also the chairman of the USLTA's International Play Committee, the one that decided which players were allowed foreign trips and which ones weren't. One year, he told me he couldn't give me too much money, but if I played his tournament, he'd see to it that I could spend a few extra weeks in Europe or wherever and really make a bundle. That way, he wouldn't have to get his hands too dirty. In 1978, Arthur Ashe reminisced, The thing I remember most is the absolute authority of Bill Clothier. He was from Philadelphia, the U.S. LTA representative for the International Circuit, and he could tell you when to go to the bathroom if he wanted. He'd come around the second week of Wimbledon, hand you your 50 pounds, and say, See you at Marion in three weeks. You showed up at Marion in three weeks. He wasn't a tyrant. I like Bill. He was a nice guy. Those were the rules. You were allowed one week abroad after Wimbledon, and then you had to come home. You were at the mercy of the National Association. From 1952 to 1979, Clothier worked for the CIA, among other things providing informants from Eastern Europe with new identities and employment in the United States. For one former Hungarian spy, for example, he secured a curator position at a Philadelphia museum. And by attending Wimbledon every year from 1957 to his death in 2002, he had an opportunity to mingle with tennis players from both sides of the Iron Curtain. His strategy was to gather foreign intelligence by having some American tennis players remain in Europe to play tournaments alongside competitors from communist nations, even if it raised the eyebrows of other unsuspecting players who were forced to return home after Wimbledon. Again, from Billie Jean King. I'll tell you a funny story in passing. The U.S. LTA would force all American players to come back to the States right after Wimbledon and play in the U.S. events, even if we could get more money and a better growing up experience playing in Europe. It also would have helped someone like me learn to play on clay earlier. But there was one male U.S. player, just some lone guy, who was allowed to stay over and play the full European circuit every summer. He went everywhere. And you know what? He was CIA. He was just like the character Robert Culp played only 15 years before I Spy went on TV.
Now, I looked, I can find no evidence that Sheldon Leonard knew anything about William Clothier Jr. when in 1965 he developed the television series I Spy, starring Robert Culp as a European tennis bum who was also a CIA agent with Bill Cosby as his trainer. King became particularly upset with Clothier in 1963 at Wimbledon when she was the nation's third-ranked player. In those days, whatever your gender, the USLTA had to give you approval before you played abroad. Then it would dish out some expense money. And one summer, when they doled out the grand sum of $240 to me, I knew they were giving Chuck McKinley $1,200. I knew. There aren't any secrets in tennis. They made the payoffs to us at Wimbledon in cash, in little white envelopes, right in the tea room. And I went to Bill Clothier, the big society honcho from Philadelphia, the gentleman who was in charge of that sort of thing, and I protested that it wasn't right that McKinley could get that much more, five times as much. It wouldn't have been so bad if Clothier could have at least stuck to his guns and said that he and the rest of the U.S. LTA believed that women were second-class citizens and we were lucky to get bus fare. At least I would have admired his honesty. But instead, he just lied outright and he told me I was mistaken and that McKinley certainly wasn't getting so much as a nickel more than I was. Bill Clothier was recognized several times for his government service, including a 1967 Order of Merit for Distinguished Service by the Peruvian government. He also helped to found the Philadelphia chapter of XFBI, the Society of Former FBI Agents. So William Clothier Jr. lived three lives, a successful businessman, a champion for tennis, and a spy for the CIA. In his youth, he had even dated a not-yet-famous Philadelphian, Grace Kelly. His first wife, Irene Grief Clothier, died at age 63 in 1990, and he remarried. Clothier died of leukemia at his Valley Forge home in October 2002. His obituary requested that memorial donations be made to the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport. He has not been elected as a member. He is buried with other family members in the Clothier plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Oh, and the term, tennis anyone. It first showed up in a different form in the satirical magazine Punch in 1891 when a character said, I'm going to see if there's anyone on the tennis court and get a game if I can. Ta-ta. And then in George Bernard Shaw's 1914 drawing room comedy, Miss Alliance, the character Johnny Tarleton asks, anyone for a game of tennis? It started showing up more frequently in British drawing room comedies and novels in the 1920s and 30s, usually uttered by a brainless but good-natured upper-class twit. Think P.G. Wodehouse's Bertie Wooster, who would appear in white flannels, brandish his racket, and inquire among the other weekend house party guests, anyone for tennis? It is especially associated with the young Humphrey Bogart, who started his career as a stage actor in many Broadway plays. In the 1925 play, Hell's Bells, his line was, it's 40 love outside, anyone care to watch? Instead, Bogart substituted the simpler and more astute two-word phrase, Tennis Anyone? 
The phrase became a way of getting excess characters off stage. You can hear it everywhere, from the movie Singing in the Rain to three Daffy Duck cartoons, Rabbit Fire, Drip Along Daffy, The Ducksters. Even the original British-powered trio Cream recorded a song called Anyone for Tennis. It was on a single with Pressed Rat and Warthog. It was the B-side. That served as the theme song for the movie The Savage Seven, a little-remembered outlaw biker movie that featured the screen debut of Penny Marshall in 1968. So there is a long history for that phrase, Tennis Anyone. The January mid-month podcast, Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories number 4, will be released on Friday, 14 January 2022. It is about Theodore Presser, a man who spent his life making things better for music teachers wherever they could be found. The February edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 35, will be released on Friday, 28 January 2022. For Black History Month, I will tell you about civil rights leaders Sadie and Raymond Alexander, AIDS activist, author, and LGBTQ community leader Joseph Beam, Penn football star Denny Hoggard, first black player in the Cotton Bowl, and the recorder Marion Stokes, a woman who in her lifetime amassed hundreds of thousands of hours of videotapes of television programs over a 35-year period. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It is an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bella Kinwood. There's parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation for West Laurel Hill is to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. The hours are short again. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines when you join us. And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours by Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here is more to satisfy your curiosity. LaurelHillCemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hot Spots and Storied Plots, Virtual Tours 1 and 2. Both will give you an overview. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video 
video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Plus, podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep your body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, be it at the cemetery or in your ear from the podcast, Stay safe, stay well. Yeah, there were a lot of references for this one also. (laughs) When you're putting together a show about five different people. Um, A couple I'm going to recommend specifically, though. There is an article in American Heritage Magazine, Volume 30, Issue 5. It's available free online. It's the August-September 1979 edition. It's by Spencer Claw, K-L-A-W. It's called Frederick Winslow Taylor, The Messiah of Time and Motion. Also, the website, inventionandtech.com, there's an article called Scientific Management Goes Golfing. When Frederick W. Taylor applied his principle of the one best way to golf, the acclaim was less than unanimous. That was written by James Hansen, and that was the Spring 1999 edition, Volume 14, Issue 4. Then J. Bodwin, B-O-D-D-E-W-Y-N, Frederick Winslow Taylor Revisited. That's in the Journal of the Academy of Management, August 1961, Volume 4, Number 2, pages 100 to 107. An article by Edwin A. Locke, The Ideas of Frederick W. Taylor, an Evaluation. That is from the Academy of Management Review, January 1982, Volume 7, Number 1, pages 14 to 24. And finally, Robert Canagel, K-A-N-I-G-E-L, The One Best Way, Frederick Winslow Taylor and the Enigma of Efficiency, Viking Press, 1997. Moving on, Ray Kennedy. There is an article called Howard Head Says I'm Giving Up the Thing World that was in Sports Illustrated September 29th of 1980. Highly recommended is an article by Stuart Luthner, L-E-U-T-H-N-E-R. It's called A Bad Skier's Revenge. You would never find this. It's in Airport Journal, November 5th, 2005, but it's online. Uh, Go to the website, airportjournals.com, and put in Howard Head. I really, really recommend this article. Janie Makari Palace, Tennis Physics, an interview with Howard Brody. That is from the website, tennisserver.com, from 
Uh, let's see. I don't really have a date on that. But if you put in that name, Pallis, P-A-L-L-I-S, and the interview with Howard Brody at tennisserver.com, I think it'll take you to the article. Finally, Patrick Ercolano, 300-10 mass for Howard Head, the Baltimore Evening Sun, March 8th, 1991. And... Alfred Leaf, L-I-E-F, Family Business, A Century in the Life and Times of Strawbridge and Clothier. That's New York, McGraw-Hill, 1968. Terrific resource, E. Digby Baltzell, Sporting Gentleman, Men's Tennis, From the Age of Honor to the Cult of the Superstar. And that was printed in New York and other cities, the Free Press. 1995. Uh, if e. Digby Baltzell's name sounds familiar, his book, Philadelphia Gentleman, is probably one of the best references you can get about many of the people that I talk about on this podcast, especially those, uh, the nouveau riche from the golden age in the late 19th century. Billie Jean King and Frank DeFord, her autobiography called Billie Jean. That's Viking Press, New York, 1982. And then I found this. This is Don, D-O-N-N, Thomas Gobby, G-O-B-B-I-E. Gladys Helbin and the original nine, the visionaries who pioneered the women's professional tennis circuit. It's Purdue University Open Access Dissertation from January of 2015. I hope that'll hold you for the next couple of weeks till I get another podcast out. I hope you enjoyed this. I would like to hear from you. If you have any comments or suggestions, joe at joelex.net is my email. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.